Uh, I'll say it twice just in case. We're not turning to Genesis today. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we will be. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, if it was not for your amazing grace that as John reminds us that we love you because you first loved us. It was not for your amazing grace that saved a soul like ours. To think where we would be, oh Lord, our hearts tremble. But we gather to, together today not because we think that we are better than anyone else. If we truly understand Scripture, we will know that in our hearts lay the most vilest things. But if it was not for your saving grace, we would be lost. But dearly Father, as people that have been called out by your name, help us now as we open your word, that as we open your word, we will remember that it is your word for us to obey. And as we open your word, may it be like that double-edged sword that pierces down, all the way down into the joint and the marrow. So, dearly Father, help us. We desperately need it. We live in a world that is continually screaming and calling us opposite ways. So may we hear your voice clearly and be obedient. In your name we pray. Amen. So we uh, started Genesis actually back in March, if, you were, uh, if you're following along. And as we've been working through it, we're now coming to Genesis chapter 3, but before we get to Genesis chapter 3, we've got to just think back through. We've been in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 for a very long time talking about the incredible theology and doctrinal foundation that Genesis 1 and 2 has given us. In Genesis 1 and 2, we've seen a biblical worldview, how God, the creator of all things, has created things and established things. We've seen how he's created mankind. We've seen how he's created them male and female. We've seen the whole institution of marriage that was given to us. And we see all of these truths, and as we look at them, it can be very quick for us to say, it seems like in the last 50 years these have been under assault in every way, shape, or form. And I want to ho hopefully... You will not think that way anymore because the distortion of gender and the destruction of marriage has been under attack literally from Genesis chapter 3, which we're about ready to go into all the way until now. This is not something new that these things have been under attack. When mankind rebel and with the fall of Satan and all of these things that are going to, we're about ready to step into in Genesis 3, all of these things and all of the truths that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 are going to be under attack from Genesis 3 on until the Lord returns. And so I'm, I want to give you the goal of what Satan and the sin that is causing these things to happen in our world, what's their goal, and then how did we even get to where we are now? So remember, the goal of even Satan, when he rebelled against God, was saying that I want to be the Most High. I want to be like the Most High, tearing God from His throne. When Adam and Eve rebel in the garden, when they say, no, we know better than God. God does not know better. They were putting their place in God's place. And so literally the goal, that has been the goal from the garden in Genesis 3, is to tear God from His throne. To remove Him from the rule that He is, by just very definition of creators, to remove it. So how do you remove God from his throne? That's a great question. Well, the answer is, is to destroy or deconstruct, which is a famous word everybody likes saying now, 
to deconstruct or destroy every creation ordinance. So whatever God established in Genesis 1 and 2, the goal then is we can destroy that or totally deconstruct it to mean nothing that it ever was meant to be. We have now started to win. So what's the first step to do that? If the goal is take God off of his throne and then destroy everything that's going on in creation, the answer is, number one, we start worshiping creation instead of the creator. This is what Romans 1 is all about. So we start worshiping things, and in the including of those things, instead of God, is man. So man starts worshiping himself instead of God, or created things. Which then leads to, if man is no longer worshiping God as creator, it leads to man then saying, I do not want to be created in the image of God. My image-bearing state here starts to disappear, because if there is no God and the man is God, then what does man worship? Man and the image of God that he was created in to reflect is now pushed aside. And in the image bearing of God that we studied, remember man is created in the image of God. He created them male and female as image bearers of God. So if the image of God is being destroyed and removed, so then male and female is going to be distorted and even rebelled against. The roles that God has called men and women to will be distorted and rebelled against. And now the marching orders of our day, after thousands of years of doing this, the marching orders of our day, between the distortion of male and female, is this phrase that everybody likes to use but do not really understand it. They demand equality of the genders of opportunity. Equality of opportunity is heard. And so in the 1970s, this idea of equality of opportunity was ripped out and then shoved into a Supreme Court decision which in the Supreme Court decision you may know of Roe versus Wade, the argument for why abortion was to be allowed was, because of equal of opportunity, that a woman should have the same ability of not being pregnant as a man. So if a man, if there's no differences in the genders, a man does not have to be pregnant. So a woman then, equal opportunity, doesn't, has, has to have the ability of not being pregnant. That continues on until all of a sudden we get to this idea of social dominance that now is happening in our culture. And what we see here is the rebellion that has started from the garden is now being played out that what is sin in Scripture, what Scripture says this is sin, society celebrates, and what is godliness in Scripture now is called the greatest sin of our age. And we have gone so topsy-turvy in our world in front of us because all of this has been an attempt to destroy the very nature of God that he established in Genesis 1 and 2. So, what are we to do then? The church needs to be that great confrontation-confronting voice in society. Because we need to understand that there's a beautiful design that God has given in Genesis 1 and 2 that the world is going to try to destroy. And so as image bearers of God who say they're an image bearer of God, we have been called to image Him in every way possible. So you've been called to image Him as a male. You've been called to image Him as a female, what He has given you. Not only is the church to be a beacon in this world, we are also to interact in the church setting as male and female. You do not leave your gender at the door and come into church. 
We're about ready to see that real quickly. You come into the church, and I walked in as a male, and my wife walked in as a female. We did not have to have someone who was a biology major tell us these things. God's Word tells us these things, and as we enter into the church setting, we function as male and female. And some of you may say, really, Tim, why are we taking time to do this? You'll, you'll get to it in a second here. But we function in those God-given roles. And so we have to ask ourselves, and this is at the root of it all, do we really believe and are we really willing to demonstrate to the world around us that we, according to God's word, have the better story? Because the world tries to say, here's the story, evolution and no purpose whatsoever. But if we're a follower of Christ, do we actually truly believe that we are calling people to, I'll even change my notes, not even the better story, but the best story of all stories, the word of God. Do we really believe that? Because when the challenges of the culture start to press on and say, conform, be like us, do we really believe no is because God's word gives us a better, an even best story to tell to the world around us. So, the better story starts at the very heart that we, as male and female, are created by God with a role in creation. So we get to this passage here, and we're going to read it. I actually added, we're going all the way to the end of chapter 3, so 1 Timothy 2, 8. Now, before, I, before we read here, I want to pause. 1 Timothy, all right, if you just look at the top of the title, right? So that means, obviously, there's a second Timothy, all right? But after we got through that, 1 Timothy is written by Paul to Timothy, all right? Timothy is his son in the faith. Now, it is not just written by Paul to Timothy. Paul is going to tell us that all Scripture is literally God-given, so when Paul is writing here, these are literally the words that God wants us to know. So remember when we started off, some guy started off the service by what the text carries the authority because of the author. So literally, this is what God's word has to say for us. This is not Paul, some guy that just woke up one day and just had it out for people. All right, this is Paul who is inspired by God to write the very words of God. So then to disobey or to disbelieve what Paul is writing here is literally to disobey or disbelieve God. So here we go. Verse 8. I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. Yet she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or... He may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicting to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also, also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you, so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Now, as we go through this, there is a lot in there, and... At the speed we like to go through things here, that would be its own series for a long time. But we're going to just work through some things here real quick. Obviously, you see here at the end of the text, he says, this is how the church is supposed to function. He says, here are the instructions of it, right? And so whenever you get instructions given to you, there's always two sides of every coin that people like to go to. You will find in the church world that whenever there's an issue... What will happen is they'll be ending up usually two sides of the issue, all right? One will have this side and one will have the other side. And what you do is, if you really want to sound theological, you have to put a really big word in front of it, all right? And so there's going to be two sides as we work through the roles of men and women in the church. There's going to be two groups that are going to say, here's where we stand, all right? The first is called complementarianism, all right? That's one of those wonderful words that are really long. But here's what complementarian is. It is a teaching that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God and that men and women are created to complement or complete each other. Now there's that one view that is called complementarianism. Now there's another ism, an Arianism view, that is called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism says, in Christ there are no gender distinctions anymore. Gender distinctions are a result of the fall. And their argument comes out of Galatians 3.28, where Paul, in writing to the Galatians, if you want to turn there, go ahead. I'm not going to turn there, but you can turn there if you'd like, just to give you a little context of it. So let me give you their argument. In Galatians 3.28, it says that in Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. All are one in Christ. So they will take that and they say, so in Christ, there is no gender. The problem with that is they have ripped it completely out of its context, and as they rip it completely out of its context, they forget, what, first of all, when the book was written and what's Paul talking about. The book was written in 49 AD. Do any of you remember what the whole Jerusalem council was about, where Paul and Peter had to go toe-to-toe with? Can Jews interact with Gentiles, and can Gentiles actually be saved? Remember, Peter had a whole big issue with that, right? And when Paul is writing this, he says, in Christ, all are saved in Christ. You do not need to be a Jew to be saved. Do we need to convert all these people, all right? And then he went down through the other dividing things in our culture. Men and women both need the gospel. There's, no, there's not like men get saved, women don't get saved. And then he even goes down to, just in case you're wondering, slave and master type of thing. Both of them need the gospel as well. It is not as if the master is any better than the slave or the slave any better than the master. He is not trying to do away with gender, nor with Jew-Gentile differences, nor is he trying to do away with slave and free. All right? The point of the text is saying all, need, all, are, say, all are sinners sorry, and all need the gospel. And in Christ, we're all one. Now, 
It's pretty clear kind of where we stand, hopefully, as a church. We would be in the complementarian view. And so I just want to, real quick, just go down through, and let's look at the text. Verses 8 through 12, Paul is giving instructions. He says to the men, Men, you are to pray without anger or without quarreling. All right, then he moves rather quickly then to the ladies, and he talks about how they need to adorn themselves with respectable apparel. He talks about how they need to be modest, self-controlled. He talks about their heart issue and how they learn. How are they to learn? Under submission. They also talks about what they can and cannot do and what can they not do. He gives them the order of they cannot teach or exercise authority over a man. And then immediately he shifts and he says, now here's who is in authority. And he gives the list of the qualifications of those who are to be in authority. We see the elders and their qualifications. We see the deacons and their qualifications. And so what he's giving is a laundry list of how the church is to function. Now, you might say, boy, that seems kind of simple, doesn't it? And I would go, yeah, it does, but we have a hard time with this in the church body. And so as he's walking through this, though, there was a part we kind of hopped over. After he says, men, this is how I want you to be praying, and after he says to women, this is how you conduct yourself, and then he says to women, Here's what you, here are the two things you're not to do. Not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And now the next verse is the hinge of all of this. This is why we're hopping out of Genesis to go right here. The next verse, it says for, and so now it's giving the argument. Like if I were to tell the kids in the car, you need to be quiet because, now you better listen, this is why you need to be quiet. All right, here's the thing it's saying, here are the reasons why I'm telling you this. He does not say for, in our day and age, in this culture, this is the way we do things back in the Roman world. That is not his argument. What is his argument? For, and then he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and he says, for, and Genesis 1, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is before the fall. Creation order is giving us the roles of men and women in the church. And just in case of he because God in His sovereignty knew that there would be an egalitarian view that says after the fall, there's no gender. He says, and these things still stand. Adam was not deceived, but the woman deceived and became the transgressor. Here's the argument on both sides of this. This is the way the men and women, the roles of them were before creation, and even after the fall, there are still roles. Gender is not devoid. But what happens here so quickly, we like to say, well, that's the way that culture was. When you ever have a creation argument, that means that this command spans all time. There never will be a time in the future where the creation order does, just says that doesn't matter. Paul is saying the creation order matters, and on this basis, this is what God is giving us the commands on how men and women should interact in the church. Now, this seems, I believe, to be very clear. When you see phrases like, here's what you ought to do, here's what you ought not to do. Like Paul is saying, a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. You go, that's pretty clear. Or if he says an elder must be a husband of one wife and all of these other things, that's pretty clear. There's no like skirting around that. All right. And so just like there are roles given to women, there are roles given to men. There's going to be some men that are not qualified to be elders. There's going to be some men that are not qualified to be deacons. And so all of these things going on are God's roles for the church. And that we believe here at CBC that the Word of God is not just a suggestion. 
We do not believe it's the word of God that says if the culture likes it this way, you go that way. We believe we are to read it and we are to obey it. And you may say, again, point number two, like, why does this even matter? I mean, like, is this just some hobby horse that, Tim, you're off on to? I would actually say, I would argue, no. I believe literally these are the words of God given to us for us to play out. And one of the things God has called me to be is to help steer and shepherd this flock. So you would think that one of the most number one things we need to understand is, as I'm looking at a female or I'm looking at a male, what is the role that God has called you to here in this church would be kind of a big deal. And I would say it's a huge deal because what is it anchored in? It's not Tim's feelings. I want to make sure you're clear on this. It's anchored in the, literally the creation order. That if we get this wrong, we're getting the very basic things wrong. Understanding the roles that God has given us as men and women is not only to understand humanity, but I would argue is to understand God himself. In the Trinity, we have equality, but we have different roles. And these roles complement each other beautifully. God the Father is the one, the architect of it all, sent His Son. God the Son went submitting to, obeying, even to the point of death, the cross. And God glorified Him again by raising from the dead. And when Jesus was down here on earth, all He was about, how do I glorify my Father, the one who sent me? He said, even multiple times, Jesus said, I did not come on my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. He submitted to his father's will and even to his role. His role on all of this was to die a gruesome death to bring about salvation. And his role he embraced because not because he was any less God, but because that was the role that was given to him. And not only that, as the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to redeem and purify the bride, to present the bride back to the Son for us to worship and glory in. Each of the Trinity has a beautiful, different role, yet equal in value, yet completely different in role. This is why man is created in equal relationship, yet with different roles. Man created in God's eyes, male and female, as image bearers of God. But yet... The goal of humanity that rebels against their Creator is to stand in the Creator's face and to say, we want to be in control. We want to rip you from the throne. We want to be the ones who distort it all. Listen to uh, feminist Laverne Cox as she says this, a lot of what feminism is is about moving outside the roles and moving outside the expectations of who and what you're supposed to be and to live the more authentic life. Let me repeat that again. A lot of what feminism is, is about moving outside the roles, moving outside the expectations of who and what you've been supposed to be and living the more authentic life. She literally is crying out, you want to live authentic? Go exactly against how God has created to you and then you're your authentic self. We would look at that as followers of God and say, if you want to live that way, you're living in rebellion against your authentic self. And to actually know your authentic self is to know God and what he has called you to. So to summarize this, I want to summarize it for a moment and then work through where these things trip us up. To summarize the issue, we believe wholeheartedly the Bible teaches that men and women have been given the freedom to use their God-given gifts and talents to glorify God. We at CBC believe that God has equipped men and women in the church to do and to be those God-given talents that He has given them. In the creation order, though, there are different roles, and responsibilities. These have been given to us as male and female for our good and His glory. Do we really believe that? 
Do we really, really believe that? Because I'm going to give you three scenarios that I have watched played out. One of the scenarios, I literally was on staff while these scenarios were playing out. And I, and I looked at it and I said, this is going against literally the creation order. And boy, the, the, the smooth, slick ways that these things can trip people up. So here's what happens. Because what we have to understand is this. The order is clear that men have been called by God to be the shepherds, the leaders of the church, and women have been called by God to do their role as well in the teaching and admiration of other women and children and all the other things there. And there is one spot where God has said to the women, you are not to be part of. But we don't, let's be honest, we don't always like that. If, if I were to say to some of you, right now there is... You can go into any room in the church, except for that one over there. You can't go in that one. But you can go anywhere in the church you want, but you can't go in there. How many of you just want to go, well, why? You I mean, you can go anywhere. I mean, there's food in the kitchen. There's tons of food in the kitchen. You just can't go over there. And many of you, even if your stomach is hungry, what do you want to do? Find out what's in there. I mean, it's probably some of you are going, I really want to find out what's in there right now. I don't even know what's in there. I mean, what was in there before? Well, there's different stuff in there than there was not that long ago. And before you know, we're all tempted to want to do that instead of going, do you understand how much movement you can have here? But here's what happens. Here's what you see. In scenario one, you have a gifted female teacher. You have a church in this scenario who has this gifted female teacher, and they have a low view of children. They also have a low view of women. And I'll explain more what I mean by a low view of children and women. In their leadership, they have passive or unqualified men leading. So you have a gifted woman teacher, low view of women and children, passive or unqualified men leading. The cultural pressure pushes against the culture, and they start to say, if we do not allow this woman to preach, we will be denying her her gift that God has given her. And to make it even a little more goofy, this lady says, I feel God calling me to be a pastor. So what does the church do? In scenario one, what the church does is they find ways around God's very clear teaching. And so what she does is this. Usually these are the two ways. Number one, the leadership says she will preach under our authority. Or another way I've heard this literally said about this, you will have the husband. She is preaching under her husband's authority as she shares the word. All right, so that's scenario one. Scenario two, church leadership knows that the church will reject a woman pastor, because they can read their Bible and they understand grammar. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. I'm saying that in all sincerity. So they slowly allow a woman to become more and more present in front, waiting for that day. And that day usually is Mother's Day, where the female pastor, usually it's the pastor's wife, will stand up and preach to the mothers in the room. And before you know it, we have enabled ourselves, and we're just that much closer. Scenario three. They don't have any women pastors at all. No, there's no women leadership, but women are functioning in every way without the title. Literally, I've been in churches that say, we do not believe that women should be leaders in the church and elders or deacons, but we have women shepherdesses. And I want to go, do you know what the word shepherd means? It literally means pastor. All right, so... 
You can say whatever you want to say with them. You can window dress them whatever you want, but if they're exercising authority and teaching men, even if you call them directors, or you call them organizers, or community organizers, or whatever you want to call them, if they're functioning as it, they are doing the job of that, and they are stepping outside of their God-given roles. So how do we respond to this? Let me help you. Scenario one. Remember we have the giftedness, or the feeling of giftedness. Giftedness or feeling of giftedness never trumps biblical qualifications commanded by God. Giftedness or a feeling of giftedness never trumps biblical qualifications commanded by God. No different that if one of you were to come up and say, Tim, I feel God's calling me to be an elder, and I say, I'm sorry, you're married to three women. I don't care how you're feeling that day. There is a clear biblical command that you are in violation of. You are not qualified to be an elder. God has made those determinations, not me. Next, what do we do with the whole woman preaching under the husband's authority or church's authority? Here's the one I want to be clear, and it's a tongue twister. Husbands do not have the authority to give his wife the authority to do what God clearly says she does not have the authority to do. I'll say that one more time. The husband does not have the authority to give his wife the authority, but God has clearly said she does not have the authority to do. All right, because if we're not careful on that, I don't have any right to say to Allison, go ahead and bring the word, sister. All right, no, she, I do not have that authority. Why? Because God has clearly commanded in Scripture that she does not have the authority to do that because God said it. I can't lead her into sin. There was once asked a guy one time, what would happen if his wife ever came up and preached? And he said, the thing she should be preaching about is why did you allow me to be up here? I'm like, that's what I said to Elsa. If that ever happens here, you could preach to us and you read out of this and saying, enough said, and go sit down, all right? Because we look at these things and we say, very clear teaching of God's Word. And not only that, if you're functioning in the role, you are doing the role. If you're functioning in the role, you are doing the role. That all said, and you want to go, what's going on that leads to all of this? All around us, there is confusion. If you want to look at any of the latest polls in our society, we have now tipped that is in the 70% of average churchgoers think it is okay for a woman to stand up and preach on a Sunday. And that is amongst evangelicals. And I want to say, why is, why, what is the struggle here? Why are we in 1 Timothy and not in Genesis? I'm going to say because the creative order, Paul is arguing, this is how it plays out. The creative order is huge. And how these things play out. This is no small thing as we went through the book of Genesis. So then we have to ask ourselves, point number three, what are we to do? Now, we did a whole series in 1 Peter 3 on the roles of men and women in the home. I'm not talking about that today. But I'm going to talk about the roles of men and women in the church and the biblical truths that they are there. First point, in Titus 2, 3, and 5, and we don't have time to dig into this text, but you can look on that on your own. In Titus, women are called to exercise their spiritual gifts in the church. Women are incredibly called. You must exercise your spiritual gifts in the church. Timothy, which is also written by Paul, Paul, which is not confused here, but Timothy, he, and he writes in Timothy, he says, women are not to teach or exercise authority over men in the church. So that would mean that women are to exercise their spiritual gifts, and we also have, if you want to call it, boundaries where these gifts can be. We see here in 1 Timothy that qualified men are to teach and exercise authority. I could under, you can underline that qualified men. It does not mean all men. 
There are qualifications that men must meet in order to have authority and in order to teach. It's not just any bump on the log that's a guy that is a male. It is qualified, and you see that all over the place in Scripture, to look at the God-given qualified men. And that the ladies of the church that have the gift of teaching must exercise that. But the parameters are this. For the ladies in the room that have the gift of teaching, God has called you to teach literally two-thirds of the church population. Let me repeat that again. God has called the ladies to teach two-thirds of the population, which is other women and children. Now why is it that the women of the church, not necessarily here, but the women in general like to rebel against this? Instead of embracing their God-given role, the garden lie is coming back. What is the lie in the garden? You can literally eat of every tree, every single tree in the garden you can eat of, but you can't eat of this one tree. Now, the rebellion was, what's wrong with that one? I can, I'm gifted with chewing. I can chew what's ever on that tree, just like any other tree. I feel like eating of the tree. Whether you feel like eating of the tree, whether you're gifted or not to walk up to the tree, you're still commanded what? to not break the command of God. Now, in this, the law of God is not restrictive. The law of God is beautiful, saying here is what God has given you. The temptation is to ignore the two-thirds and desire the one-third. Because here's what has happened, and this is what has happened across the board. Back, way back before the Reformation came about, women and children were marginalized and pushed to the side. During the Reformation, guys like Luther said, we need to not only teach everyone the Word of God, we must teach our children, the next generation, and the wives at home as well. And so they started these things called catechisms, the question and answer thing that we do in True Seekers. All of these things came about, and before you know it, children were actually brought into the limelight that they need to be taught. And not only that, but one of the most illiterate groups of people, not only back then, but also worldwide, are ladies. One of the most illiterate people able to read worldwide are females. The the labor and the, the, the ground is ripe of needing to pass on the word to the next generation. But here's what happens. We move into Victorian England time period, and we still have it to this day, this Victorian England thinking. And here's the phrase that came out of Victorian England. Children are better to be seen and not heard. And that has so influenced our culture to this day that even to this day, I have literally heard people go, oh, you've been given the gift, and they say it like that, of teaching children. Or you only get to teach ladies. And these are ladies saying this about ladies. All right, I'm going to get on a soapbox here real quick, if I haven't been on one already. But here's, here's what I'm walking through. If you've ever been to a men's conference... The number one thing they talk about in men's conference is deep theology. If you've ever been to a women's conference and you haven't thrown up in your throat, because here's what they say to women. Here's how to make lemonade out of lemons. And the amount of stuff that is given to women this day should be an affront to you ladies. And it's not men writing these ladies' books. It's women writing books to ladies acting like you are a bunch of ignorant fools. Because you can't handle the deep theology of the Word of God. And I would say, shame on you ladies who are writing it, and shame on you ladies who are not saying, give us the meat of the Word. Why is it the guys only get the meat, and you go pick up the average across the board writing to the ladies, and you might as well think you're a bunch of ignorant idiots, and I'm not writing it. You ladies are writing this stuff for yourself. 
Your number one selling book, ladies, was Girl, Go Wash Your Face. I mean, for crying out loud, that's what the best we have in this world to offer us as young ladies. Because each one of you, I could go back through and list the ladies that taught me as a kid. Her name was Sharon Boyer. She finally got married. She was a single lady for the longest time. I was like, well, there's always Aunt Sharon, you know, when you're growing up. And this lady influenced me in massive ways. And she is influencing you guys by the way she influenced me to teach me the things about the Word of God because she didn't look at teaching little kids as some type of life sentence. Nor do we have other ladies who are going, it is time for us as ladies to have a thirst and a hunger for more than just the little table scraps that you guys somehow think. And I would tell you ladies, as much passion as I can, wake up and demand more. Wake up and say, we want to know the things of God. Because here's what's happening. While we're all arguing all of this, and we have these ladies who say, I've been gifted by the Word of God, I want the limelight. While they're always crying for this limelight, I would say, do you understand what comes with the limelight as well? As well as, here's the other thing, while we as a church body are wrestling through this, outside all around us, as women of the church sadly are looking at teaching women and little children as if it doesn't matter, the world around us literally, and you can YouTube this song, here is what they are singing. They are singing this song, literally the title is, We Are Coming for Your Children. It says this, we will convert your children, and it happens bit by bit. Quietly and subtly, you will barely notice it. You can keep them from our discos, warn us about San Francisco. We will convert your children, and they will make, and we'll make them tolerant and fair. We will convert your children. Yes, we will. Reach them one and all. If this last month did not awaken the church body to understanding if we needing to reach the next generation, there's a whole group of letters out there, way of thinking, that is going 120% right at your kids. And the best and the brightest ladies that God has gifted with teaching, they're fighting for spots that God has never given them the authority to do. And we have it all upside down. And what we have created in front of us is mass confusion when the Bible, I believe, and the leadership of church here believes is incredibly clear. And so we have to ask ourselves these things. What are we to do? Do we just hang our heads and go, ah, oh, good thing that doesn't happen here? Oh, please let's not be ignorant. Because every year and every day we need qualified men to lead and we need qualified women to use their gifts for God's glory in their God given roles and to not despise the God-given role that God has given you. That's the challenge. Every generation has to answer this. Every generation has to look and say, what are the God-given parameters that God has equipped me in, and am I doing my God-given role? Because the temptation in the garden, which we're going to get to in Genesis 3 here, is strong. It is very, very, very strong. And the moment when God says, you can do this, but you can't do that, what do we all want to do? Here it is. Let's do that. But beauty is found when we function within our God-given role. Harmony is found when we function within our God-given role. Now, for those of you in the room that maybe some of the teachings that we've heard today have been used as a tool to try to crack the whip to keep people in place, you have not been led by qualified men. When men that are qualified lead, it is a joy to serve underneath their leadership. 
But these things like this, everything can be used and abused. And so the goal for us is to continue to seek out those God-given qualified men to lead in the church. And then the goal is to look for the God-given qualified women to teach in the church and to teach in their God-given parameters. I am not in any way capable of saying that you can do something that God's Word is not clearly taught. And here in, at CBC, we believe that these are the roles that are there. That is why you will see when we elect different people to different positions, the elder and deacon, because just reading through that, I, we used he, 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 he. These are God-given roles. And we will not call a lady at the church an elder. Because the God does not call them elders, nor will we call a lady a pastor, or any of these other things, because God is the one who set the parameters. And so a question in front of us is this. And it was a question I said, I think I've said this a couple of times, and maybe you will know this. Because I shared a closing, and I said it's easy to say right now. But when the pressure is on, when society says, Oh, you go to CBC. Oh, they don't let women do this, that, or the other thing. And they don't do this. And oh, they're a bunch of bigoted men. You know, that Pastor Tim up there thinks that women are subpar or whatever. And it's a complete and utter lie. But the pressure from our church is pounding upon us. Why we don't have Pastor Tim and Allison being here? Because that's the really cool thing to do, the co-pastor world. When we go, that might be the really cool thing to do, but that's not the biblical thing to do, and we're not going to do the unbiblical thing just to fit in with society. And so then the question in front of us is when society pressures us, when society says, what are these things going and everything else, and they pull out the, is this leave it to beaver world or anything else like that, and I go, I don't even care about, leave it, you can leave it to him, we're going to follow the word of God. When we say this phrase, that everything God does is perfect and completely wise and is the fittest means to accomplish everything He has decreed, that would also mean the role that He has called you to. Do we really believe that? Do we really, really, really believe that? Because there is pressure all around us to cave, not just in these issues, but every other issue. So do we really believe the Word of God is complete and sufficient? And I would hope we'd answer yes, amen. Now, I was asked to preach a sermon by the leadership of the church. It was a pa something that I'm also very passionate about as well as us getting the roles that God has called us to. Now, here's the thing. You are not, I did not equip you to go out and fling verses at people. We never fling scripture at someone. So let's say you come across and you meet someone who goes to I don't know, second whatever church of whatever, and they have a female pastor. You don't go, oh, you're wrong and on your way to hell. All right? What we do is we learn to talk and have conversations with people. We are not any better than anyone else. Our job is, and command by God is to follow the Scripture wherever it goes. Now, when conversations happen, we don't back down. But I, it is not our job to go through all, all of Marshfield, and Pastor Tim's going to go to every single church and start throwing over the tables and turning over. We know what we believe God has called us to, and we are accountable before God. Now, we will not back down from the truth. We will not cave into the pressure by God's grace, but this is what we believe the Word of God says. And the reason why we took it out of Genesis here is because, literally, this is what Paul says. The reason why we have 
men in leadership here is because of the creation order that we just finished up. Now, things are going to go south real quick in Genesis 3, all right? But Paul is telling us this is the way it's from the beginning, and this is the way it should be now. So let's pray and then stand up and sing about the gospel of God. Dearly Father, thank you that everything you do is perfect and completely wise, that you've equipped men and women of the church to glorify and honor God, that you've given them these talents and these gifts, and may we use them in the God-honoring way. The world around us continually is to pressure us in so many ways, and so, dearly Father, may we stand firm on the truth. May we not waver. And may we proclaim that there is one gospel, and this is where we stand. In your name we pray. Amen. If you could stand with us as we sing.